You're such a professional pourer. I love it. How did you learn what is the appropriate pouring techniques? I don't know. I think I just picked it up. It's experience. Just experience. Exactly. Lots of beers is how I learned it. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Hello, and welcome to In Theory, the podcast where we talk about the theories that help us make sense of the world. I'm Naran Khan. And I'm Maria Sachko Sasiri. Today, we're talking about indie crafting and old-time maker culture. When did acting like we're home on the range get so cool? Why is it so satisfying to can your own jar of jam, to hand build a table, or to make a quilt? And why do even the most liberal hipsters tend to pick crafts with such strong gendered associations? Stick with us as we venture into the wide world of the crafting comeback. So to start us off, I had a beer with my friend and colleague, Allison McKim, and she also works at Bard, and we talked about the home brewing explosion. She had a lot of really interesting stuff to say about beer and gender also, so we'll be hearing her voice later in the episode. Okay, here we go. Should I officially? Yeah. yeah. I'm I'm Allison McKim, an assistant professor of sociology at Bard College, and my specialty is gender as well as the study of punishment and criminal justice and crime. But I have a side hobby, as it were, <laughs> in beer, and so I apply my gender training, professional training, to my thinking about beer. This is perfect for what we're doing today. Bring together what you do for leisure and passion with real life academic knowledge here. But I have to say that I don't brew. <laughs> I just consume. <laughs> <laughs> I have not yet ventured into the territory of being an alewife, although it's very intriguing. <laughs> okay, so tell me about homebrewing. People brewed at home, at least in the United States, probably a fair bit, even though brewing was commercial up until Prohibition, and maybe it expanded, mm-hmm. they think, after Prohibition because you couldn't get beer otherwise. Mm. But but Prohibition <laughs> killed also a lot of breweries. The diversity of American brewing was really harmed by Prohibition. So afterwards, the beers that survive are the large breweries that turn out the beers that we are well aware of, like Miller and Coors the and Bud Budweiser, of the world. Anheuser-Busch, these sorts of companies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. And they're the ones who survive. And so beer in America gets increasingly homogenous and crappy. It turns out what, what, the, what the craft beer people call um, American adjunct lagers. Hmm. Adjunct meaning that they're not made entirely with barley, but with rice okay. and other cheaper grains. So beer gets more boring. It's all in the same style. It's done very poorly. Post-prohibition, right. that's what remains of commercial brewing. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, it seems like, although home winemaking was decriminalized earlier, oh. home beer brewing was still under federal law, not permitted until 1979. Really? When Jimmy Carter signs a bill that allows homebrewing on a small scale for personal use rather than commercial sale. And that's part of what sparks the homebrewing revolution. Ooh. I think there had been some movements towards homebrewing in the 19, late, late 1960s, 1970s mm-hmm. DIY kind of right. we would now call hippie that. culture. Hippie culture. Sure. And, uh, but, but that's what actually enables people legally to do this. And so night, so Jimmy Carter is a hero of the craft brewing world because I, of his 
his it, the way he legalized home brewing. I did not know that. So it was 1979. <laughs> That's really what starts That's it. That's nuts. And then people start home brewing, including my stepfather, really? Jim Searing, who, as when I was a little girl, and he and my mother were seeing each other, mm-hmm. and, and then they moved in together and everything, and I was. I didn't know that I was being trained for my beer nerdery at the time, but he was home brewing and would uh, have me come down and cap the bottles, like a, use the machine, whatever the like little mm-hmm. lever that like, it was, uh-huh. to, to, to put the caps on the beer bottles. How his, old were you at this point? Oh, I would have been really little five. That is so cool. So I've been apparently involved in this for much longer <laughs> than I even really remember. Um, so people like him and probably a wide range of people were started to homebrew and a lot of the famous early craft beer makers mm-hmm. started as home brewers mm. and people credit the legalization of home brewing with the explosion of craft beer. And it was those people who wanted to make beer that wasn't the crappy homogenous, you know, light loggers that everybody was getting from the commercial breweries, especially people who'd had the wider variety and more interesting flavored beers that you get in Europe. There was just nothing in the U.S. that really did that at uh, all anymore. So so the kind of explosion that we see now of craft beer that you can buy grows out of like the home, home brewing. brewing. Yeah. So then what about people who are home brewing now? Is this like, it does seem like there's been a bigger bump in the past, I don't know, like 10 years. Yeah, I would expect that you're right. That craft mm. brewing starts with home brewing, but once people get into beer, you get more and more people doing home brewing themselves. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a cyclical process in which one is feeding the other. So that it's expanded it on all those levels, although still heavily male-dominated, despite the history. Despite the history. Despite the history. Which we will get into. Yeah. That was so great. I know literally nothing about beer. I've never had a sip in my life, but uh, <laughs> but it was still really interesting. I have had many a sip in my life, but did not know a lot of this stuff. So it was really fun to talk to her. I'm not the type to work in a bank. I'm no good slapping on paint. Don't have a knack for making motors crank, no. But I'm pretty good at drinking beer. So hand me one more, and it's what I'm here for. Okay, so crafting has been around for a long, long time, and it's a really big business. As of 2012, at least 62.5 million people in America took part in some kind of crafting, from scrapbooking to woodworking to jewelry making. That's almost 20% of the population that year. Mm. And that's not even including some home brewers and bakers and gardeners who wouldn't be captured by that stat. Yeah, for sure. But at the same time, anyone who's passed through Brooklyn or Portland in the past decade or so knows that crafting has taken on a new dimension recently. In 2009, the Craft and Hobby Association ran a special portfolio issue on this wave of indie crafters, craft makers, mostly between the ages of 18 to 34, uh, so it's also like a lot of our demographic, hey y'all, who the rest of the world would probably (laughs) refer to as hipsters or friends of hipsters. Um, So this article from the Craft and Hobby Association identifies three major interests that this new crafting demographic has. Ecological awareness, so like wanting to make things themselves because it's better for the environment. Self-expression, of course, and sharing with a community. And also cultural awareness, so especially this feeling of authenticity and connection. Um, So there have been some good culture pieces on this huge trend in the past five to seven years. 
we've also seen bookstores filling up with hip how-to books on everything from whittling to yogurt making. And just as an example, uh, one article noted how between 2008 and 2011, the demand for home canning supplies went up 35%. (laughs) And I guess relatedly, this fascination with making things by hand in your spare time has also become a major aesthetic statement in the 21st century. Think mason jars and barn weddings and all of the shabby chick stuff everywhere. Yeah, totally. I've been to some delightful barn weddings. (laughs) Delightful. Right? Yeah. So lots of very robust and lively communities have come out of crafting and kind of maker culture online who may Mm -hmm. not live where you live, who might have access to other kinds of resources, who might have other kinds of insights. But crafting culture has been around forever. Building community around crafts has been around forever. Mm -hmm. But the piece that's been different in the past 15 years is the ability for people in really different geographies to connect and really small niches to connect. Mm, And we all know the kind of smaller the niche, the more hardcore the group of people around it. And so when you find people (laughs) like yourself, you really throw yourself into it. And so I really think there's something to be said for the technological aspect of this iteration of building culture and community around hobbies, pastimes, crafts, and constructing things together. Totally. Think of Pinterest. I'm like afraid of all the ladies on Pinterest because of their superior (laughs) skills at everything in the world. It's like amazing. They're definitely better than you. I love you, Maria. They're better than all of us. There's also this faux idea that people are doing this in their spare time with other things going on. And and it's it's kind of like the idea of effortless perfection mm. that, oh, like, I just threw this together, but, like, people spend 10,000 takes to get the image that that looks effortless, and they really monetize it. So what, what's seen as, like, effortless and casual and a hobby is actually a breadwinning occupation for some people. Mm. And yeah. the effortless piece is part of selling it, and that's the Pinterest case sometimes and inspiration. But the other piece is Etsy, where you actually can – in some cases, not in all cases, monetize and sell your craft or your hobby. And so there are these consumerist pieces in the periphery of this, what's seen as like informal labor going on as well. Oh, yeah. Like sometimes it's not even in the periphery, right? It's all up in it. Yeah. Like think about all of the (laughs) cute mason jars and stuff like that that you can buy at like Target or Walmart, where those are definitely... And craft aesthetic, but very much part of a major, like, multinational corporate structure of production. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, or the craft aesthetic, but you skip all the steps except for the final step, which is, like, my favorite kind of thing. (laughs) Paint by numbers or whatever other kind of shortcut. So you can get to the end game without having to do the labor required. Yeah. I love what you said about community because I do think that's really important, especially the ability to form it over the internet or also, like, in our immediate neighborhoods. Yeah. I also want to add that I have a really amazing, hardcore, badass lawyer friend who was like a lefty lawyer. She's amazing. And she is super into knitting. Super into knitting, like very hardcore about it. You walk into like the second bedroom in her house and like the entire wall prior to having a kid was just full of different kinds of yarn. So she's like very into it. But you would never... You would never know given stereotypes I have in my head about folks who knit. And 
the way she talks about the the community she's found online related to it is actually just so inspiring and remarkable. Like I never interact with people who have different politics than me in a more consistent and deeper manner Hmm. than through these communities where we exchange. I I don't really know what the knitting communities online do. I feel like they, they have meetups for sure. And they're from like all over the country, but they also like connect and share patterns and different kinds of stitches and needles and things, right? Yes. Exactly. But the the compassion with which she describes this community and what it gives her is just really remarkable, actually. And I think it's not not unique. I love that. And, and I think what you're saying also about people meeting across different political backgrounds and generational divides is really important to this, because especially as we live in more and more isolated environments where you really often don't know your neighbors, you don't get to know people immediately around you as much, finding these ways to connect to people that are not just like you, I think are really important. Totally. I mean, I'm super lucky, again, in my adorable town to live next door to like the loveliest couple in the world. And they're retired. And the the wife, she has this like ongoing craft exchange with me. And so anytime she finds out I'm interested in something, she'll encourage my crafting and bring me things. I know. And then so we had this adorable exchange where she was doing this tile painting class. And so she gave me some of her leftover Mexican pottery clay. And then I made a little pig bowl for her because I had seen them in Mexico. And then she painted it with this like Ukrainian painting style that she had (laughs) learned before and gave it back to me full of chocolate. That's adorable. That's incredible. I feel like I there's this community element. There's this like self-expression element here. There's like the ability to show you care by investing time in something. Totally. And all of that is so positive. And then I feel like there's this like edge that I get when we talk about like the wedding industrial complex where I just imagine this malnourished woman agonizing over some sort of craft crying crying because of the details (laughs) just the like wanting to control everything wanting to be in control like wanting to be perfect wanting to do everything Mm -hmm. perfectly parts of us that some of that can channel too and so like I just think of the other image as well I want to hug this poor skinny girl (laughs) I know more pig pottery exchange with full of chocolate and less dressing yeah So I guess one of the questions is like, how did we all get so into doing crafts for fun, right? Yeah. Because if we think about a lot of the things that we do, these were things that we used to do for necessity, right? We knitted because we were cold and we needed sweaters and blankets and we canned because otherwise you would starve to death in the winter. So I'm going to take a second to give a short history of handmade crafts, I guess, since the Industrial Revolution. And then we'll talk a little bit about some of the theory behind why it feels so freaking good to hand construct your own table or whatever it is. Great. So first thing to think about is that, you know, the Industrial Revolution replaced tons of cottage industries and handmade work. So people used to make like textiles and household items at home all the time. But then once the Industrial Revolution came about, suddenly it was way cheaper to just buy it in a shop because now with assembly line production and 
global market starting to emerge. It just got a lot cheaper to do it outside the house. Mm-hmm. People also still grew and preserved their own food for longer. But when the food industry shifted over towards agribusiness and Fordist assembly line production, like we talked about in the food episode not too long ago, um, when that started happening at the start of the 20th century, then gardening, canning, pickling, preserving, that stuff increasingly became a hobby also. Mm-hmm. So there were, like, backlashes. In the 19th century, the arts and crafts movements in both Britain and America, they were really trying to push back against what they saw as a degradation of craft in everyday life. And they were especially upset about how the rise of cheaply reproduced goods eroded the beauty and uniqueness of craft items. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the arts and crafts movement were actually about, like, artisans making stuff to sell. But the problem with that was that it was slower than industrial production Mm -hmm. and a lot more expensive. So in the end, right, only rich people could afford it. (laughs) But I'm Ching. Yeah, it didn't really have the effect they were hoping it would have. After World War II, people were starting to get into hobbies a little bit, like tinkering in their spare time. And then we saw a really big bump in the 60s with the hippies as they were embracing pottery, weaving, and other handmade work. And I actually read this really great book by this woman named Rachel Lee Rubin. She has a book about Renaissance fairs, which are fascinating. That's a whole other conversation. (laughs) You know, I'm like obsessed with Renaissance fairs from afar because of the Gilmore Girls and Luke's sister. Like like her stint on a Renaissance fair circuit being a really important part of the storyline, at least the last season. Oh my God, so good. Greetings, my lord. Your lady hath arrived to be escorted forthwith. That's pretty good. I didn't know you spoke Renaissance. Oh, yeah, quite fluent in Renaissance. You look nice. I'm loving the tie. Thanks. You look beautiful. Flattery will get you everywhere, my friend. Shall we? Let's go. So please take me, Maria. Take me some time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have only been once, but as you know, because you were sitting there while I was stitching the dress (laughs) out of, like, sackcloth... I am committed to doing it like 110%. Beautiful. So we must. Excellent. So, so this book on Renaissance fairs actually gives a fascinating cultural history about how it came out of California in the 60s and grew out of a children's theater group that was like in this one neighborhood. What? Yeah. And, and this woman who was like running this children's theater group put on these like fairs and events and they needed all this help to do the craft side of it. And their neighborhood, because it was in California in the early 60s, were all these people who worked in the entertainment industry who had been blacklisted because of (laughs) Red Scare policies, right? So, like, they were not able to get work, so they had all these skills in spare time. So they helped out start to set up what became the first Renaissance fairs. And so from the very beginning, a lot of this music and performance and crafts that were coming out of Ren fairs were associated with left-leaning thought and, and the larger hippie movement also. That is extremely confusing. I mean, it's not confusing. It, it all makes sense when you say it. I would have never had any clue of that. Oh, totally. What? Okay. That's interesting. Well, especially since now it doesn't necessarily have that implication. Yeah, no, not at all. Why actually do people want to do work for fun? Like, shouldn't you be at the beach or metaphorically at the beach during your free time? Why do people want to make things? That is such a good question. And I mean, one thing that like has been a recurrent theme in this little history I've been giving is the recurrence of like lefty types. And that has to Mm -hmm. do with our theory for today, which is Karl Marx on the theory of alienation and like being alienated from the product of your labors. As everyone I'm sure knows, Karl Marx is like kind of a big deal in left-leaning 
circles. He's the the big deal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. One of his big things, I mean, his big thing is that we as modern workers under capitalism are alienated from the products of our labor. And what that means basically is that since capitalist industry thrives on the division of labor, so each person working on a small part of the larger product, so like an assembly line or something, individuals in that system are usually reduced to doing some very small task repetitively or doing some kind of abstract task like marketing or something like that where you're not really able to see your work through from beginning to end and then have like a close relationship to the product of the thing that you've been working on. The classic example you get from Adam Smith, who's like the granddaddy of modern capitalism, is he uses like assembly line production of pins to show how like way more effective it is to make them with a line full of people. But then the problem is that like each person in that line is only, I don't know, like straightening a pin all day long and that's it. And they never get to build a whole pin from beginning to end. And Mark says like that makes us feel really effed up, right? That we like don't have any sense of connection or meaning, like why am I doing this work? How is this important? And in a kind of concrete way. And even more so in a society where we're defined, we're increasingly defined by our jobs. That's like who you are. Yes. And where you spend mm-hmm. most of your productive hours. So like you're even more imbued, like that's an e- even bigger part of who you are. And if it's reduced to a particular repetitive task, it can lead to this sense of alienation. Totally. And, you know, on top of that, a lot of the kind of work that happens now is intellectual work, at least in the developed world and totally. the circles that are getting into indie crafting, right? So here we're usually talking about like white, middle, upper class, college educated, often urban young people. Mm-hmm. And so these people are often in creative industries or, you know, business or banking or law. And so they're often doing work that you actually don't have anything to hold at the end yep. of the day. So. Crafts give us the chance to experience making something all the way through and getting to enjoy it at the end. So what we might imagine as unalienated labor. Also, since we don't have to do it to survive, a lot of the stakes are lower, right? Totally. I can this jam that I made and it turns out bad. I'll like buy it a lot more cheaply at the grocery store and still have plenty (laughs) of jam. If it works, then I can invite my friends over and eat this yummy jam that I made. Or you can gift it and everyone loves it and you feel good. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. I love making something from front to end and being like, I did this. The best example for me is cooking and just being responsible for something and then being able to tangibly share it with people. And I can imagine that happens in all sorts of other ways for other folks. Mm. I guess related to the cooking... I've talked in our previous podcast about what prompted my interest and my interest in health and taking care of Mm -hmm. myself. I think if I thought really deeply about it, which I just did over this past week, there's something to be said for the fact that I wasn't particularly happy in my job and I was spending all of my time in my job when I started cooking. Mm -hmm. And it was a way for me to own something, to feel productive, to feel like I was learning things as I was like self-educating about like health and nutrition and food. Mm -hmm. And I poured so much time. I like fixated on it and I'd like produce things and I'd photograph them and I'd share them with people. Whenever I did have a little bit of time off, I shared my food with people. This was like a very intense hobby and I don't think it can be separated from the fact that my day-to-day professional life wasn't giving me the opportunities to be creative, to flourish, to own my time, to share my product with others, Mm -hmm. and to be able to communicate what I was doing because I was like working on like 
confidential deals that I couldn't really discuss with people either. And so I just found myself devoting increasing amounts of time to this one thing that met needs that my professional job wouldn't. And other people have theorized about this, and and we're going to talk about it a little bit later, but there is something there when you say people's day-to-day jobs aren't allowing them to flourish, like how and where do they devote their energies? And for me, that was was in cooking. And the kind of kicker here is that I love cooking, but I really love my job right Mm. now. And I basically don't cook anymore. And I want to, but I don't make time for it. I don't prioritize it. I eventually will, but... I think it's because I want to work all the time. Yeah, when you're fulfilled by the job that you're doing now. Yeah. I mean, especially the kind of job that you have, you're like super connected to the work that's coming out of the work that you put in. Yes, exactly. And there's opportunities for creativity and like all of the things that the cooking would respond to. Like I can own things. I have lots of responsibility. I can share what I do with others in tangible Mm. ways. People understand actually what I'm doing. So yeah, it's not lost on me, I guess is what I'll say. (laughs) Oh, that's so interesting. I love that. So something to take away from this is, you know, how important crafting often is to people's sense of who they are, especially in a world where work can be increasingly alienating and how it gives people an opportunity to express themselves and feel connected to their own talents and communities. You first need to get the peanuts, you get the salt and the bread. You grind and you fry the chilies, you boil the chocolate. Get cinnamon and banana, get cloves and oregano. Get thyme and the blackest pepper, you grind it in Mexico. So in part two of this episode, we want to acknowledge how gendered all of crafting has been. Mm. It's been the elephant in the room of a lot of crafts and crafting culture. So we thought we'd unpack it separately. It begs the question, how come even the most patriarchy-defying, gender-norm-questioning people often take up indie crafts that are so strongly associated with traditional gender roles and domesticity? Totally. And so to start, we're going to go back to Allison, the sociologist and bureau whisperer, (laughs) to hear about how changeable and socially determined the gendered associations of crafts really are, actually. Women were brewing, they were called alewives or brewsters, which apparently is the feminine form of brewer and they were making it so there were some brewsters i like the term alewife alewives (laughs) there were some alewives who would make beer regularly it was like a regular craft that they made they regularly sold Mm -hmm. to other people on the manor and their little serfdom kind of you know situations this is all before the black death so like 1350 almost entirely women who were doing it Uh and then after that it changes in England and men take over brewing after that and there's probably a few things that are going on Mm -hmm. one is that demand goes up so for some reason that I don't entirely understand people start drinking more beer even though there are fewer people maybe like after the black death they all needed a drink (laughs) that's probably (laughs) what it was I would need a drink you just imagine you might need a drink and so the other thing is is that this I think the social situation of single women starts to change. Hmm. And they have less access to uh, capital and property maybe than they did before, even mm. though those restrictions were there before. Hmm. So they're less likely to engage in brewing as an industry. Hmm. And the only women who are involved in brewing over the next like two centuries increasingly are wives of men. So married women. Yes. And even though the women are probably the ones who had the brewing know-how, it was the men under whose name they got what? loans, capital, yeah. 
the other thing that happens is that what's called beer, so hopped beer mm-hmm. f- from the continent, starts becoming increasingly popular in England. And when you add hops to beer, it preserves the beer mm-hmm. and it allows it to be kept for longer so you mm-hmm. can ship it farther. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that beer becomes more profitable. Basically, it, you can make more profit from it. Right. And as soon as it becomes notably profitable, men start to take it over. This is actually a trend we still notice. That oh, yeah. As industries become higher status, they become more male. There's sort of a chicken-egg question, like, do they become higher status? Because they become more male, but dominated, but they're... We talk about this with the female computers in my... Right, the female computers. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Women don't have access to those things. Mm -hmm. They're not considered good supervisors of Mm -hmm. workers. Eventually, they leave the brewing trade. And so by, like, 1600, it seems like there are very few women in brewing at all. The only women who are working in the industry are serving beer Hmm. at ale houses, and they are no longer the brewers or brewsters. So, so that like nowadays when guys are being manly and twirling their hipster mustaches and brewing their own beers in the basement, they're doing like a really gendered craft for now, but it points to the flexibility of like, yes. gender association. It was gendered the other way mm-hmm. now a long time ago. But also what's interesting is that the, the switching of the gender from it being a women's craft to is also the switching of it from a craft to a real industry. So actually, those guys twirling their mustaches, doing home brewing, they're actually doing a female-gendered craft. Yeah. Beer aside, I did not know any of that, that history, and it's fascinating. Yeah, I found the gender switching aspect of it really striking, especially because of how strongly gendered beer is now, not just beer making, but also beer drinking. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I also feel like I wanted to like put up a gif of me rolling my eyes or someone rolling their eyes when it's like, yes, of course, the men take it over and then it changes in nature. Yeah, totally. Once Mm. it becomes profitable and like leaves the domestic sphere. Or it just becomes high culture or art or monetized in a way that honors the labor put into it. (laughs) Yes, so true. That maybe gives us a, a way back into thinking about like the gendering of craft for fun that we've been talking about today. I know that you um, had shared some interesting stuff with me about like the revaluing of domesticity and how a lot of this crafting movement stuff is about actually honoring the work that gets done outside of the industrial sphere and like giving it a credence of as having a, a certain kind of special value. Yeah, beyond a special value, having an urgent purpose. There's definitely a movement around ecological responsibility. And actually someone named Shannon Hayes wrote a book called Radical Homemakers in 2010, which makes this very argument that as a political and ecological act, people, men and women uh, and everyone should embrace homemaking and take ownership over the things that happen domestically to uh, fight against poor use of resources, the chemicals in household products that are produced en masse, and just that very lefty radical Uh, statement about 
owning your home space, which right. is really interesting. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I can definitely see why people would want to feel like what they do in the home is connected to larger movements, especially like ecological ones. But also, I mean, it does put a lot of pressure on people. And it sounds like especially women to be, you know, again, refocusing their energies on the home, which I think for a lot of people might feel like a step back. Totally. Well, a journalist, Emily Machar, wrote a book last year called Homeward Bound, Why Women Are Embracing the New Domesticity. And Mm -hmm. it has a a lot of really salient arguments, but one I think especially pertinent here is the idea that people engage in work at home because their lives at work aren't especially fulfilling, which we hinted Mm -hmm. at before, but she really speaks to the idea that like workplace policies – family leave, opportunities for advancement for women. She really strongly links it to like limited structures for women to thrive in the workplace. Hmm. Really can cause people to be like, well, I have no control over my destiny in this one particular space, but at least in the home I can own everything and advance and I know what success looks like. And it's just, it has different terms. And so I feel like that isn't the only thesis of her book, but I, I found that it really resonated for me in our job market, in the fight for paid leave or family leave and everything else, like maybe it's just better to control your home space and really invest in new domesticity. And I guess one of the things that that might lead to is the fact that if you already are expected to take on these gendered tasks in the home, like child raising and food production and decorating and cleaning and those kinds of things, then if it's a sphere in which you already exert some power, it makes sense to like just do it amazingly awesome. Exactly. And then you can get a sense of fulfillment out of that. Totally. And then separately, you can also point to like, say, the failure of government to not provide great education for everyone or you know, not ensure food safety or have sustainable environmental practices. Like all of that stuff could feed into these decisions. So beyond just the labor. Right. So like, so in that case, you're talking about like, like homeschooling and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And so it ends up being like, again, super gendered. I mean, I guess in a slightly different way from like someone who works for a startup who likes to knit in her spare time. Yes. But, (laughs) but I mean, and maybe not totally unrelatedly, right? That sense of wholeness that you get is connected to a historical sense of what you're supposed to be doing with your time. Yeah. And I think there's also, I guess, a measure of irony, right? At least in the beginning. Like, oh, ha ha, I'm a woman and I'm supposed to be canning things. And look, I'm canning things. Yeah. And it's a, a knowing nod, like, oh, I'm not really invested in this worldview. But then eventually that sort of, like, drops away. And I make yeah. superior canned mushrooms or whatever. Do you can <laughs> mushrooms? I don't know. So <laughs> You can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the takeaways here is that when we talk about crafting, whether you say it explicitly or not, gender is lying in there in wait somewhere. And it would be really great to live in a world where men embraced crafting just as much as women did. And I think that's like part and parcel to equal share of domestic work and other kinds of things where, you know, we shouldn't have these like narrow and rigid views about who does what kind of not just work, but activities and pastimes. So 
I think we should expect that men craft and knit and we should embrace it. And the separate story here is like women's only spaces and the real value I think that they have in our world as it currently exists. Mm -hmm. But just be really cool and important, I think. Yeah. As Allison's comments have shown us, also what counts as a gendered craft at one moment might switch in another moment or take on a new dimension later. So I think being open to people being interested in a lot of different kinds of activities and encouraging people to explore lots of different kinds of activities that give allow them to feel connected to their work and to celebrate their talents or to discover a new one is a good thing. Agreed. Questions, comments, ideas, we'd love to hear from you as always at intheorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also find past episodes and more info about us at intheory.us or on our Facebook page. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and please recommend us to any and all of your friends. In Theory is produced with the support of Experimental Humanities and Human Rights Radio at Bard College. Many thanks to our intern, Olive Carol Hawk. Music composition and art design by the High Five Worthy, Aaron Taylor Waldman. Thanks for listening.